Canada Day, 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 Day of the Daleks. Did that thing. Yeah. Happy Canada Day. Happy Canada Day. This is our, I don't, when we started this podcast, 2014? It would be unlazy of me to either look it up or no. I think it's a lot longer yet, not as long ago as we think, mm-hmm. basically. But it's so, this is our like probably our sixth Canada Day. And we often do a little mini marathon and we're hoping to do that today with Day of the Daleks. We specifically planned it so that it would, Canada Day would fall on Day of the Daleks. Just wait until we hit Day of the Doctor on Canada. Even if we have to <laughs> delay several months just to land on it, we will uh no we might not no probably mm-hmm. not no promises no but we have we have done our usual uh canada day routine that's just a fun thing to say canada yeah. day canada day uh routine of uh, eating a bunch of indian food even though we couldn't go to a buffet this year uh, but we got takeout brought it home stuffed ourselves silly had some chai to wake up and now watched episode one of day of the docks yes uh the first story of season nine there are many things that I, I will offer up <laughs> oh uh, about this story uh, as a whole in this episode, I guess. Um, but uh, but yeah, your initial impressions. This was this was so fun. I like just from the very opening shot, it was like this is a frame of Doctor Who that I am really sure that I have never seen before. Right. It was in color. It was on video. It just it it felt like the Doctor Who of my childhood. In a way that nothing in, I don't know, nothing in season eight did, mm-hmm. just in terms of the look and feel of it. Um, and it was completely new. And it just, I was immediately sucked in simply by the look and feel. Interesting. Uh, I only say that because what you didn't see or feel when it came to, you know, feeling like familiar yet strange Doctor Who is that remember when I said that Dudley Simpson was given like one synthesizer basically to make Uh the entire score for all of season eight Mm -hmm. well now he's got he's managed to Mm -hmm. uh, negotiate real instruments and timpani and stuff back into it so this I feel is sort of the beginning of Dudley Simpson's sort of classic period where you know that sort of like Mm -hmm. mix of mostly orchestra but also some electronic elements it sort of starts in in this story and there was music from the very beginning, right? It didn't start on a on like silence. It, there was no music in that first scene. Okay. At least that very first shot, there okay. certainly wasn't. So okay, so that so the very first shot like just felt really really interesting, interesting and exciting. But I do think as it went on, I maybe you've put your finger on part of it that like when I think of the Doctor Who of my childhood and the Doctor Who that has seeped itself into my brain and in my soul. I think timpani is the number one word (laughs) (laughs) that comes to mind because there was a lot of that here. And it just, uh, there was one point where I actually turned to you and said, this is some Doctor Who music because it just felt, it just felt right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you so. Oddly enough, though, series, uh, series, season nine is a much more diverse musical oh. uh, season than uh, than in past or perhaps in future as well. I'll just leave you on that. Okay. Um, but but yes, I do agree that sort of this this is the beginning of of the <laughs> the I don't say classic because I actually prefer the seasons five through seven mm-hmm. Dudley Simpson era. Mm-hmm. But uh, this is certainly the most familiar and thus good. 
it feels comfortable, like sliding into an old comfy pair of slippers that you can just like, you know, slouch around the house in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, 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 it felt good. And now, now I'm interested going forward to see if I have the same warm, fuzzy feels about future stories if they are, you know, different musically. That'll be intriguing because mm-hmm. there are, I'm just trying to think which, uh, yeah, mm, interesting. And I, I may have seen some of the, uh, some of the, yep. the, the stories in this, in this, uh, in this season. So, so we'll see, but, uh, but yeah, there was just, and it also the performances, I don't know if it was because I got sucked in from the very beginning and was uh-huh. thinking, you know, like this feels, this feels right and great. So I was set on the right foot mm-hmm. to take everything in, but I just found everybody delightful yeah i feel like it, like <laughs> the scene when the doctor carries in the uh the tray full of wine and gorgonzola cheese yeah. and crackers and you know joe i have things to say about joe in this story but uh but at that moment she's she's like are you sure you should really be like doing that and the doctor's like absolutely <laughs> and i was like yes absolutely you should why not and i just he I don't know. I found it hilarious and delightful and just very funny. And like, I don't know. I I would not have expected to feel that way about the third doctor. So I don't know if it's just that by this time he has grown on me enough that I liked that or or what. And I feel like maybe the the him going on about the cynical wine was a little over the top, <laughs> but it almost played like he was he was doing it for Joe's benefit, like to like he he, there was some amount of self-awareness there that right. that was a bit ridiculous and Joe is really scared so just really right. over overdoing the fact that he is totally comfortable and not worried about anything uh-huh. in order to calm her mind because he cares about her yeah being the complete wine and cheese snob that perhaps you know <laughs> he is very much an upper class doctor at this point he's not the the man of the people oh, no. uh no he is very much oh yes look at this wine and cheese and you know robbing uh the, i like the line about you know there's uh one thing about politicians they always keep a well-stocked larder and you you nodded in agreement to that <laughs> yep yep i uh i sure did but i i also think that like there aren't a lot of examples of the doctor sort of embedding himself with anybody but the upper class but you know i can picture him you know in in costumes of workers and that sort of thing and i don't feel like you know i feel like yeah sure he's he's not necessarily the man of the people doctor but just the situation that he happens to be in here mm-hmm. lands him in these situations more often than anything else so that's what we're seeing i feel like you know he could he would still be fine if he ended up you know any old place with any type of people yeah he wouldn't be able to maybe embed himself quite as comfortably as some of the other doctors but i think he's still the doctor and i think he still has that fundamental character that he could if he chose um be ingratiating toward whomever or Mm. or whatever it's just that we just you know he's working for units so of course he's gonna end up in in places like this and you know we uh, i get the impression that he even from the line about the the well-stocked larder is he's not super fond of the idea that there are these politicians that have so much more 
than everybody else on earth and you know talking about humans squabbling amongst themselves that sort of thing so i feel like in this case he is taking advantage of that because he's like this is dumb this that you know like these politicians are are living large and that's not necessarily the right way for things to be so you know what i'm just gonna help myself and even things out just a little bit here by having some (laughs) delicious gorgonzola cheese and i'm really craving gorgonzola cheese and red wine you were lamenting the fact we didn't have any red wine in the cupboard that's true Although, you know what? We're actually a lot closer to red wine because there's a liquor store right downstairs. Whereas to get gorgonzola cheese, I don't know how far we'd have to go. Several blocks at least. Possibly. Possibly several blocks. We may well just... I know in past we had uh, a bunch of wine. uh, Not wine. Yeah, I mean, we did have wine and cheese. Some Canada Day marathon way back when. Mm -hmm. I remember that. We do have some delicious goat cheese in the fridge, That's all right. So I could have some some goat cheese and uh, and some wine. I do I'm not sure how expensive it would be, though, to get a truly cynical bottle of wine. True. Well, the, the doctor does drink, I think, uh, scotch in the morning because... Or something. Like, we don't know yeah. what it was. I, I found that hilarious, too, that, you know, with his evening meal, he's got the wine and the cheese. And then there's, as you said, morning booze. Morning. And it's... it's it, a glass. You know, it's 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 in a it's in a decanter. Could be mm-hmm. scotch. Could be sherry. Um, Brandy. Could be brandy, mm-hmm. whiskey, mm-hmm. probably not rum. That's not the kind of thing that they usually no. would put in a thing like that. But we do have some very, several varieties of very nice, very expensive scotch we could dip into too. That's true. Maybe we should do that uh, later on in honor of mm-hmm. one of the great scenes in John Pertwee's Doctor Who tenure where uh, Shura comes in the door, threatens him, still holding the glass of liquor, gives him a karate chop to the back of the neck. He falls down finishes his drink, sets it down, and throws him on the couch. I thought that's peak Pertwee right there. If you had shown me that scene, and maybe I did see it, um, but just like out of context, say seven years ago, Mm -hmm. I would have been like... My eyes would have rolled so hard into the back of my head that I probably would have fainted. Um, but now, I don't know, just seeing it in context, I punched the air. <laughs> I was like, that is amazing. That is awesome. And uh, and yeah, some somewhere along the line, I got on board with the third doctor and I don't know how it happened, but here we are. Well, that's good. I'm glad that you you had the patience to sort of like watch him through his first two seasons. This is his third now. And it's just like, okay, that's earned. That moment was earned for you. It was. Speaking of his first two seasons, I still find myself uh, sometimes missing Liz Shaw because I feel like, and especially here in this episode, the 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 conversation is not quite as sparkling between the brigadier, the doctor, and Joe. Mm-hmm. And that's, this is where I have things to say about Joe here. She, in episode one at least, is... I don't even necessarily want to say underwritten. Like, there's just not a lot for her to do. She asks a few questions. She's very scared. And I think that's one of the most uneven things about her character. Sometimes she seems very brave and bold. Mm-hmm. And sometimes... The Kang should be. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> and sometimes she she seems uh, very meek and timid. And this is this is one of the meek and timid ones. And, like, I found myself thinking... Like, oh, there are, there are just little places where they could have done something slightly different. For example the scene where they're standing around the TARDIS console and the brigadier is starting to tell the doctor about um, the, the socio-political situation and all yeah. that stuff. And he mentions the name of the um, 
the house or the... Orderly house, yeah. Yes, thank you. So he mentions that. And you have Joe asking, oh, what's that? And I feel like you could have had the doctor ask what's that and have Joe be the one to answer because she's a human. She yeah. works for unit. That seems like the kind of information she should probably know. Like it's a building that's actually owned by unit. And sure, you could write it off that she doesn't. But I just think to balance out the the speaking lines and the personalities and just, I don't know, to make everything a little more even, it would have been nice to have her at least have a little bit more basic information. She's it really seems like she's there to just ask questions mm-hmm. and hand the doctor things. And she does get one nice moment where the doctor says, what do you think this looks like? And she's like, Oh, it's a mini dematerial- yeah. dematerialization circuit. And I was like, thank goodness. Yep. Like they, at least, at least they gave her that moment. But then the doctors, you know, top of the class or whatever seemed a little bit patronizing, but yeah, what are you going to do? Yeah. I mean, we just did just see the thing earlier in the episode when the first shots there. It's interesting, actually, you mentioned, you know, how Joe could have said, like the doctor could have asked what's oddly house, but the notion of the doctor being sort of clueless to earth customs is not a thing, is not a part of his character yet in this time. I think it really becomes a thing when Matt Smith is the doctor, when he's completely clueless about human interaction and it, it provides a nice sense of amusement kind of like Wonder Woman out of time in the, in the Wonder Woman movie, that sort of thing. But right now it feels like, is it almost like, well, the doctor should know because he's the, he's the doctor. He knows everything. So why wouldn't he know about, you know? Or you could have, you wouldn't even necessarily have needed the doctor to ask that. You no. could have actually had Joe saying, oh, you mean that big house that unit owns up north of blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And then the brig could say, yes, that's where they're having the, the big to do, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. I'm I'm just saying I feel like Joe deserved better. Right. Going to blame Terrence Dix for that for not uh, inserting that line into the script or Uh well, I will blame was it Louis Marx for not putting it in the first place? Yes. And Terrence Dix for not fixing it. Okay. Mm-hmm. There's, <laughs> there's enough blame to go around. I suppose so. Um I have I have like I said I have lots of like little facts to say about this one. Is there anything else you want to say before I launch into uh well, fact dump. Launch into some facts and then maybe those facts will like twig some observations that I had. Okay, well one might actually cuz I I find this uh this story in particular uh there's an iconic uh Joe Grant costume um I think. I think it's a very it's a very familiar one. I think I've seen it cosplayed a few times actually at Gallifrey One. The boots uh and the you know just the shirt and then and the dress and of course being 1972 there's this weird scarf. Mm-hmm. Um Yes. I have oh, I have thoughts about that. Okay. Uh, if it is iconic, okay, no, it's not iconic. I hate that word. <laughs> it's been ruined by brand managers. Yeah, the BBC ruined that word for me. Um I I am trying to picture somebody cosplaying that outfit. I'm trying to picture having seen a picture of it and I can't. Like there are other Joe Grant um outfits that mm-hmm. I've seen as we've gone along that I hadn't seen myself before but that I recognize like oh I've seen that before mm-hmm. whereas this outfit was completely new to me like oh. this was yeah this was very very fresh it was it was kind of cute mm-hmm. it didn't it didn't feel as iconic like it didn't feel as stereotypically Joe Grant to me um right. that scarf is very strange but mm-hmm. like the rest of it was cute enough it just I don't know it it seemed very uh, farm girl. I kind of wanted, like, expected her mm-hmm. hair to be in, like, you know, pigtail braids and her chewing on a piece of straw or something like that. Farm girl on the top, garbage street on the bottom with the big giant knee high white boots. Oh yeah, I mean those boots are are fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no no arguments there. Um, this is this particular story is my favorite. I think it's the best 
Pertwee Buffon in the entire five-year run of his route. Yeah, I think his hair is perfect in this. It gets a little bit bigger and 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 from here on in. But like this is just like it's just long of a just short enough. It's just sort of like it's it's got like a bit of a a roughness to it. It doesn't look like too finely coiffed. I think it's uh it's 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 my favorite hair and with the the red velvet uh, jacket as well. Uh, it's my favorite Pertwee look. Period. I will say that yeah, the this Pertwee look strikes me as iconic. Mm-hmm. Like I look at that and I think, okay, that looks that looks exactly like what I would expect. I didn't, the, you know, I didn't pay super close attention to his hair, but I will take a good look in episode two. Um, but yeah, the rest of it definitely seemed like that's that's a very doctorish look. Whereas on the other hand, I didn't I didn't think like I don't know when I think about Joe outfits, the mm-hmm. things that spring to my mind are real like swinging seventies kind of things, right. and that. This particular outfit doesn't strike me as swinging seventies. It just strikes me as cute. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which, to be fair, Joe Grant also very cute. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Let's think. About, oh, oh. Uh, I asked you about the controller, the cat who's uh, reporting the Daleks. If he looked familiar to you at all, and it was bugging you. It was bugging me because I could not place him. Is that Aubrey Woods? It's because Aubrey Woods. I only know that because I saw his name in the credits, mm-hmm. and then I was going. Okay, where do I know Aubrey Woods from? And I still can't. Uh, I still can't get it. So please tell me. You can't get it. No, like I can't. It's, it's it is it is driving me batty that I can't, and I feel like I should, but my brain has not been like working the greatest since you know this whole worldwide pandemic. Well, if you can't, you know who can? Mm. The Candyman can. <gasps> oh my God! Wow. Okay. No, no, not the Candyman from the Happiness Patrol, but the Candyman from Willy Wonka. The John- yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I knew what you meant. Okay. Yeah. Wow. He's a very good actor because just the way that he's holding his face and being so stern, like mm-hmm. I. Now that you say that, like I can picture that song sequence from Willy Wonka on the Chocolate Factory, and I can, I can say to myself, okay, yeah, I guess that's the same face. I guess that's the same person. But he's just so charming and delightful and and singing with his, you know, joyful smile on his mm-hmm. face and, you know, sliding children along a wall of candy on a big ladder. And and here that is that is not what he is doing. No, no. Wow. Good job, Aubrey, Aubrey Woods. You've got range. Yeah. He would go on, of course, to play, I think, Cranto. Is that his name? Crantor in uh, the Blake 7 episode Gambit. Um, the most flamboyant 50 minutes of television in British history. <laughs> mm-hmm. If you don't watch any Blake 7, just watch Gambit. <laughs> it's so glorious, and he's in that, mm-hmm. and it's fabulous. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's representative no. of Blake 7, it, no. it, but it is worth watching for sure. Yeah. Um, Day of the Daleks. So, uh, this story did not start out with Daleks in it. There's an entire draft, Whoa. first version of this story, where it's just uh, not involving Daleks. But because Barry Letts and Terrence Dix were thinking, you know, we should bring the Daleks back. Um, and they're thinking of a story later on in the season. But then they began to think, we like having like more first nights and having a big thing to kick off each season of Doctor Who. What better way to kick off this season then have the Daleks make their first appearance in five years and their first appearance in color on TV. Mm-hmm. And so they they worked it around to have the Daleks in this story instead. Instead, So was it like just a different baddie? I don't think there was any bad. I think it was basically just sort of like evil people. And the, yeah. Interesting. I mean, I haven't I haven't yet seen enough of this story to really make a, to come to a conclusion about how I feel about the Daleks. Mm-hmm. 
in this story. But hearing that, it makes me a little sad because I I kind of would like to have seen the version that didn't have the Daleks in it. It was just it was just a an interesting story in its own right. I feel like the Daleks are especially after not having been on screen for so long. It's kind of stunt casting, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> like you know, it's it's there as you said, to make a big splash. Mm-hmm. And I mean, who knows? Maybe it'll turn out to be great. But I I don't know. I'm, I'm always a fan of give me a solid story rather than something that's super flashy and splashy. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Oh, well. Uh, I, I find it, what I find utterly fascinating is, of course, rather famously, the Daleks in this story do not sound like the Daleks of yore. Um, it's like... It's almost like they were doing it from memory. Mm-hmm. I've said this in another podcast before, so forgive me if I repeat myself. But, you know, uh, Brian Hodgson, who did the sound, this is one of his last stories, actually, as, as uh, a sound. No, he's still alive. He just he okay. just left. Dick Mills takes over from um, later on in the season onwards until the end of the classic run. And I don't think he had the uh, right equipment, so he had to approximate something like a ring modulator which they used five years before. Everyone, you know, you can hear the way that the voices are done as little, as little as we heard them. It's almost like, well, we all know what Daleks sound like. It's we sound like this and that's, you know, there's no, because the original voice actors weren't back to do it. So it's, it's, there is no like production Bible or something like that. You can't just sort of pick, you know, they had like the, the Dalek control room sound effect and stuff that was still there, but, uh, but everything else is more or less from memory. And I just find it quite fascinating. Yeah, it's like, oh, we know what the Daleks sound like because we were a bunch of children yes. doing those voices on on the playground. This is or, the or we heard children. It was right, only five right. years ago. Yeah, of course. Yeah, this is the the kids on the playground version of Dalek voices, yeah. and it was a little like it's not as bad as I thought it was was going to mm-hmm. be because I have heard you and other people talk about this story as the story where the Daleks come back and they don't remember what they're supposed to sound like, mm-hmm. and yeah, it's definitely different, but it's not as egregious as I was expecting it to be given how many times I've heard people talk about it. <laughs> Even though you did say, let's pick it up here during, yeah. a, during the last outro. There, but yeah. The, yeah, that's the problem. To me, it's not necessarily the the sound of the voice. Mm-hmm. It's the cadence. Yep. Like Daleks in days of yore, as you mm-hmm. put it, didn't speak quite so slowly and quite so haltingly. It's like Captain Kirk. When anybody's doing a Captain Kirk impression, yeah. it's always like, you oh, know. It's like this, it's not like that when you watch it though. It's like half the speed and yeah. it's over overdone. This is the this is the, you know, like Captain Kirk impression <laughs> version yeah. of the Dalek voices yeah. and it was just it just took so long for them to say anything that that's why I was just like, "All right, spit it out." Mm-hmm. Yep, it, it does take forever. It is it is funny. So, um two more things, I think. Yes, two. Um one, I actually watched the entire story uh, a, f- a couple weeks ago with the production notes on. I watched the documentary. I looked it up in different books online. I even asked Richard Bignall on Twitter <laughs> if this was the case. I, I heard somewhere, and I couldn't remember where it was, that Barry Letts actually 
after the production of this had had finished, he said he actually formally requested the BBC to save it to basically don't wipe it because this is a thing you could apparently do. You could put a special requisition: do not wipe the original master tapes. I'd like to keep this one, please. Um, Bignall thought that it was a convention anecdote that uh, that was never actually based in fact, and it might have been the demons. But if it was the demons, and they didn't listen because they <laughs> wiped all but episode four. But regardless of that, this story that we are watching, apart from Spearhead from Space, which of course is originates on. 16 millimeter film for the whole of it is the first complete story in its original format in the BBC archives. Season nine, the first one. Wow. Yeah. Is that why it, I don't know if I felt like it looked good. I don't know if like pris, <laughs> pristine is not the right word, but I don't know. Just like, it just looked really good to me. Well, yeah, because uh, uh, our whole part we experience, uh, apart from Spearhead, of course, as I say, has either been uh, chroma dot color corrected or reverse standards corrected from uh, Canadian uh, color masters from the 1970s had to be that were switched from PAL to NTSC and then, of course, back from back to PAL again. So there's been some degradation for there. So yeah, this is the actual first videotape, <laughs> 625 line PAL videotape master that we have seen apart from the audio episode like uh, Ambassadors of Death 1 and a couple of the Claws of Axos and the Demons. But uh, but yes, it, uh, it, it, it might might be why I thought actually I thought the 16 millimeter film uh, location scenes were a little bit uh, a little bit mm -hmm. soft in this but that could just be how it was shot yeah I, I agree I was thinking more specifically of mm. the, the the sets and the uh, the video type yeah. I do want to say a word for the sets too oh. they're immaculate these are fantastic sets the you know the BBC does a good job with posh interiors yeah. and like that that house is delightful like you know the leather sofas and just the you know whatever knickknacks are, are sitting around it's like the set dressers did a lovely lovely job you know even just the you know curtains that the doctor can you know, dramatically open and close to show uh nighttime and daylight mm -hmm. uh, that's all good stuff yeah uh that reminds me of another thing the the famous rhip mm -hmm. scene which mark gatiss decided to homage in the empress of mars mm -hmm. Um, but you know, he's doing an homage to this scene, but of course it was awkward then because it was between a white officer dressing down as young black subordinate. And when he said RHIP, it almost felt like, uh -oh. is he going to say race hasn't privileges? <laughs> Cause he probably would in this time and day, but it wasn't. So sometimes an homage and a joke can be misconstrued if you do not set it up properly. Yep. Yeah. yeah, there were a few things in this in this episode where I was like, oh, this is where that comes from. And that was one of those, <laughs> that line was one of them. We found and destroyed the enemy. <laughs> you supposed to say any complications? A any complications? No complications. <laughs> yeah, that's another thing where, okay, so I've heard over and over again that the special edition like takes that out. Or, takes out the no complications. Why would they do that? Yeah. And like, once again, I'm slightly disappointed in how non-egregious that is. Like yeah. I was, I'm expecting the Daleks to just be atrocious as can be. <laughs> and I'm expecting that line to be something like at the level of no, not the mind probe. Yeah. And, and it's not, no. it's just, it's just a line from a character that's kind of monotone. This is Doctor Who. Yeah. There's monotone lines left, right, and center on this show. So yeah. why that particular line? Like, who had it in for that line that they decided they wanted to take it out? I am baffled. Well, I think it's the I think it's the change. You know, we found at like how slow he's saying that first one. It's the same actor saying both lines. No complications. I think the no complications sounds so natural 
that uh, it's too natural no i have oh. no problems with it oh. i love it i love it to bits i love that he uh you know maybe he not, he understands the phrase no complications or at least he's re- he's repeating him you know he can't he's saying uh, we found, like, I'm trying to remember my words, we found and destroyed the enemy. And then he asked no call, but he's just repeating what he says. So naturally he says that quicker because he's just sort of repeating it back to him. That's my um, canon to it. I, I adore it. Uh, it's great. It's what makes Doctor Who great, that one line. See, it, it, to me, it just doesn't even stand out enough to really, like, you know, be like, oh, this makes Doctor Who great. It just, it. Yeah, it's just another. It's just another line. I don't know. I, maybe if I hadn't had it built up as something to expect, like maybe I would think it. It sounds a little bit funny or different or off or something like that. If I was coming into this not having ever heard of the infamous line "no complications," but it's supposed to be infamous, and it's it's just it's just a guy saying two words. Big deal. Yeah, but yeah, it's not the first or last time that Doctor Who fans have taken one tiny little inconsequential yeah. snippet from a Doctor Who episode and made a big thing out of it. London, nineteen sixty-five. Yeah, true. I'm. I still. I still say no. Not the mind probe is like a billion times more ridiculous in terms of delivery. Like a billion times so this ain't nothing no poor paul paul jericho the five doctors like how do how do i deliver this line no not the mind probe like how yeah poor guy no there were no there were no good options for him in that scene (laughs) no there weren't and i mean don't get me wrong if anybody tries to come for no not the mind probe i will (laughs) i will cut you (laughs) because that is that's amazing like that's how i feel like that's that's doctor who and it makes it great like as you have been saying about no complications Mm -hmm. that's how i feel about no not the mind probe exactly like the siren saying ah in that episode too five doctors once we get to that in Mm -hmm. six and a half years time um we've almost been talking about this episode for half an hour and it's one episode of doctor who so (laughs) but i do want to point out that this uh story not necessarily a televised version, but the the novelized version is one of my earlier Doctor Who memories because at our local library, they had a series of, of Doctor Who books. Some Target, mostly the Pinnacle version, the Pinnacle uh, uh, prints were, I think they chose like 10 novelized Doctor Who stories to publish in the States. And of course, we got them in Canada too. And they had different logo, different cover art. And when I saw the cover for this one, I was amazed because the cover of the Pinnacle Books version features a giant unit space cruiser with unit emblazoned on the back and then an actual gorilla (laughs) as opposed to an Ogron. And for years, because of that Mm -hmm. novelization and that cover, not only did I think that gorilla was just G-U-E-R I, was the British way of spelling gorilla because there was a gorilla on the cover uh-huh. and maybe the cover artist got confused too. But that the unit years in Doctor Who were set on a giant space cruiser. So quite clearly, the person who did the pinnacle artwork had no idea what he... He did get a Dalek correct, even though its arms are in the wrong place. Uh, but I didn't see the, the actual story for... oh six or seven years after I read and saw the the book. So I was well and truly confused for a good long while. <laughs> That's the oh, that is that is delightful. I feel like it makes sense that he would get the Dalek mostly right because probably everybody had seen 
a Dalek. Maybe. Uh, you know, I mean, maybe it. I suppose it's the pinnacle. It's probably somebody from the United States. So maybe he hadn't seen mm-hmm. seen a Dalek. But that's the the gorilla gorilla thing is hilarious because yeah, the the doctor actually says was dressed as a like a gorilla commander or somebody says that yeah. word in this episode. So there you go. Could be. Uh, so spoiler alert, there is no giant unit space cruiser in this story. <laughs> Sadly, maybe in the special, special edition, there'll be tons of ogrons on it saying that there are or no complications on a massive space cruiser. <laughs> Anything else about this? Uh, I feel like a massive space cruiser would have lots of complications. <laughs> That's true. That's uh, nothing but complications, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I, I'm very uh, interested to, to see what happens next. I I haven't said anything about the story itself yet, but I w- was very interested in just watching the mystery play out. There are a bunch of times where I was like, oh, what? Yeah. Like, what's happening? You know, people disappearing, time travel, those cool looking guns. Like, this mm-hmm. is a story that starts off strong. Like, good job, season nine, for you know bringing people into it and and personally it's not the daleks that are that are bringing me into it it's just the fact that the story seems really really interesting it's a good mystery you know that the doctor and and joe and and the brig have have not really stumbled into have been ordered Mm -hmm. into so yeah i mean maybe it won't hold up from here but so far i'm i'm in well good all right onwards to episodes two three and four on this year canada day broadcast of lazy doctor who it's not a broadcast I thought we were live. <laughs> well, we are a live. Yeah. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> That's how this works. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, until the next one. Goodbye. Goodbye.